everyone. Welcome to Two Bye Guys. We're back with a familiar face today. It's book season. You all know this guest. He was here last two two years ago, a couple seasons ago. Um, Is that two years ago? Well, I, I think so. I mean, it was it was a few seasons ago. I have to check. Time is really cruel. <laughs> I know, I know. Why does it keep on going and going? Can it? Can we take a pause sometimes? Uh, <laughs> Benjamin Perry is back with us. He is a minister at Middle Church and an award-winning writer whose work has appeared in outlets like the Washington Post, Slate, Sojourners, and Bustle. And he has appeared on MSNBC, Al Jazeera, New York One, and other places. He holds a degree in psychology from SUNY Geneseo and a master's in divinity from Union Theological Seminary, where multiple episodes of SVU that I wrote were filmed. I think I said that the last time you were here. Um, Still true. And now, yeah. And now he has a book, his first book. uh, It's called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. It was published in May of this year. It is now available everywhere. And it is awesome. I just finished reading it. It really resonated with me. And I, it's stuff I've been thinking about, but the book really helped clarify a lot of things for me and gave me some new ways to talk about crying and tears and how it relates to a lot of things that we'll talk about. Welcome back, Ben Perry. It's so good to be, good to be back, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm so glad you're here. I loved our first conversation. It was a lot about theology and bisexuality. We talked about how Jesus might have been bisexual and stuff like that. So now we'll talk about a whole new realm of stuff, but uh, it's all it's all related, as you wrote about. So before we get into the book, um, I just want to check in. I use he him pronouns, but what pronouns do you use these days? And uh, I, I know you still identify as bisexual, but has that identity evolved since we chatted? Does it does it mean the same thing to you today? What is what does queerness and bisexuality mean to you these days? Yeah, uh, I use he and they pronouns these days. I've, I've been in a more gender fluid space of late, um, a, a testimony to my own confusion uh, vis-a-vis my gender more than anything else. Uh, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of definitive things to say about my gender as I, I still feel a little uh, unstuck in time to, uh, <laughs> to paraphrase Billy, Billy Pilgrim. But yeah, you know, I've been trying to sort of nod to uh, the fact that I have never felt particularly comfortable within cisgender masculinity. I've, uh, you know, thinking back to even, you know, being a little kid, I never felt comfortable in large groups of cis men. Mm. And the more I started to recognize that, uh, <laughs> you know, that wasn't actually about them, it probably was a little something to do about me uh, and started scratching beneath that surface. I, I realized that, uh, yeah, I don't strongly identify with being a man. Um, I don't know exactly where that leaves me, but I've been trying to nod to that sort of expansive place. So people have a, a better sense of at least, you know, roughly where I am as, as much as I know it these days. Um, regarding my, my sexuality, uh, I've been using queer more. Um, I think particularly as I've been wrestling with some of my own gender stuff, uh, queer, I like as a nice catch all for, uh, something that will encompass both, you know, some of the, the gender fluidity that I've been moving through. And then also, uh, you know, it's funny like the, the label bisexuality, pansexuality, like there's a, a lot of different words that people use for the, the same thing that I experience, which is, just, I just don't you know, my, I'm attracted to people regardless of gender. I don't mm-hmm. use bisexuality to mean like, oh, I'm attracted to men and women. And I, I think many people who identify as bisexual uh, don't use the word that way. But I've also heard other people be like, oh, well, that's what, you know, bi means too. And, and therefore, if you're bisexual, it means yeah. you're attracted to two genders. Maybe it's not men and women, but it means that there's two genders you're attracted to. And I think that's a little needlessly legalistic. Um, but yeah. I've been using queer just because it's, I, I like how expansive it is. 
And I also like that it means it opens a doorway for if I want to talk more about my gender, if I want to talk more about my sexuality, I can. But in other spaces, when I actually don't really want to get into it, I can just say queer and people get a sense that like, oh, <laughs> he's uh, not uh, cis hetero. And, and that I, I think is enough oftentimes that I want to give people before if, if I'm not don't actually want to enter into a whole conversation that I may not be feeling that day. Yeah, I also have been using queer a lot more for exactly the same reasons. You, su- I, I have nothing to add. You summed up my feelings perfectly as well, and and I and I also like how the, the word queer can sort of refer to more than just sexuality. And there's other ways yes. we can queer ourselves or relationships or communities and things like that. Uh, yeah, I yeah. just actually gave a whole uh, sermon last Sunday talking about you know what what does it mean to say God is queer. Um, Ooh, and that's explicitly saying that, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with saying that, you know, God has a queer sexuality. God is a queer gender identity because you know, God, God is God. God does not have a sexuality or gender identity. Um, uh-huh. but this idea of defying binaries of breaking supposedly fixed borders of this endless becoming of dynamic change of that fluidity that, uh, you know, I, I very much, uh, my own theologies in a sort of process place these days. I don't believe in God as a sort of static entity, but something that is uh, endlessly developing and changing and evolving alongside humanity. Um, and so I, I think, you know, to talk about queerness in those kinds of language is also, it's a useful analytic tool to help people see that in the same way that queerness is not just about you know, who we're attracted to, who we sleep with, who we love, although that certainly is part of it. Um, that God to say God is queer likewise helps people think and understand both God and queer siblings in a different kind of way. So yeah. that's so so to to say just it's a long way of saying I completely agree and I think queer yeah. is a really useful yeah. lens for inviting all kinds of other conversation. Yeah, that that's really cool. I hadn't heard that, but I do I agree that God to me is an idea, and we I think we talked about this last time, but a lot of this started to make sense to me when I came out as queer and it fits so much with my conception of God and things I had learned in my Jewish upbringing about questioning authority and, you know, asking questions and, and developing your, your sense of relating to the world as opposed to just doing what you're told kind of thing. Uh, So it's all, it's all connected. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Okay, let's talk about the book, Cry Baby, uh, or Cry, Baby, more accurately. Uh, so how, uh, how did this come about? Why did you decide to write a book about crying? Yeah, I really didn't uh, set out in the world to, to write a book about crying. I actually ended up writing an essay about crying uh, in the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so I was living right next to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in Washington Heights. And I was watching as they were parking morgue trucks in the street outside my window because so many of my neighbors were dying that there wasn't enough space for them in the morgue. And while this was happening, there was also this relentless push towards normalcy of like, get back to the office or, you know, not physically in the office, but like, get back to work. You know, we got to, you got to put on a brave face and just keep a stiff upper lip and, and uh, you know, make sure that the trains run on time. And it was this really perverse friction where I was experiencing so much grief, just listening to the sirens wail all the time and did not see that grief reflected in a broader cultural response. And it brought back for me this really visceral memory of being 20, 21 years old and realizing that I hadn't cried for a decade. I had a professor 
uh, in seminary who invited us to reflect on the last time we had wept. And as it, you know, the conversation was going around this little circle, I realized that I had no memory, zero memory of the last time I had cried. Uh, and I had so suppressed and deadened my emotions because of internalized homophobia and uh, you know toxic masculinity and all these other things that had convinced me that that kind of vulnerability was a liability and a weakness that I had just totally shut down to the point where I did not actually feel emotions in any real or significant way. And so I could sort of feel the rough you know, contours of being happy or sad, but I didn't actually feel euphoric or heartbroken. Uh, and I had this, you know, again, this embodied flashback to this memory of myself when I just was not feeling things. And what I ended up doing in my early 20s uh, while I was in seminary was starting this deliberate practice of forcing myself to cry every day. Um, I did it the first time that, that the same day as that class, I went home and I was like, oh man, something is, is broken inside of me and I need to fix it. Um, and I made myself cry. And then I felt so good crying that first time after so long that I ended up making myself cry every day as a sort of spiritual experiment. And what happened over the course of several months was I just completely rewired my emotions and I became somebody who learned how to feel again. And so I was reflecting on that transformation that I had gone undergone when I was in my early 20s and used it as a kind of microcosm for what I thought we collectively needed to do, that we, you know, as a culture, needed to learn how to grieve, needed to learn how to express the pain that we were feeling and really confront it instead of papering it papering over it with these exhortations towards normalcy. And so I, I wrote this essay and it ended up in the Washington Post and an editor reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested in writing a whole book about crying? And I said, I've never thought about that. <laughs> but the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized that Crying was this beautiful lens to talk about all of these things that I cared so passionately about, about queerness and masculinity and race and uh, politics and, uh, you know, transformation, the opportunity to uh, treat emotions as a topic for serious academic consideration. And the, the more I researched and looked into the topic of crying, I realized that there were very, very few serious treatments of crying in any kind of intellectual way. You know, crying has this big outsized uh, footprint in poets' minds, but it has such a, a modest treatment in any kind of, you know, serious intellectual inquiry. Uh, and so I wanted to write a book that would really approach crying with the seriousness I think it deserves. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's also something that like, the more I read and thought about it is really a big part of my story and trajectory, especially coming out as bi. And, but, but it wasn't something that we've really talked about on this podcast that much. We've talked about emotions and recognizing them, but not so much about crying. And I think I went through a similar thing to you. I don't know about never, ever crying, but I also brought up, was brought up with like an aversion to that. And I would repress tears a lot. And I didn't think it was cool or manly to cry. I mean, we'll get into all of this, but coming out as bi and going to see a therapist, that was very intertwined with starting to recognize my emotions and accept them and realize they were real and valid. And then to come out as bi, at, like around the same time, I started crying more but at first in a therapist's office and then in real life in different situations. And can you talk about how your queer journey was intertwined with, with this story of crying in the book? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, and this is one of my favorite things about now having written a book about crying is I share that with people and I get to hear all of the stories of other people's, you know, journey and transformation with their tears. Uh, it's, been this completely unexpected, wondrous gift. People are so eager to talk about their tears, to talk about how crying has changed them, and alternatively, also to talk about. You know, I hear so. I, 
I hear so many people who say, I wish I could cry. That's mm. an, a, a reaction that maybe I should have expected given my own history, but I, I didn't. I kind of thought that I would have been one of you know the only people who had really suppressed tears to the point of you know excising them from my life. And what I found, having written the book, is that so many people uh, have this, this same experience of of yearning to feel more deeply and feeling like there's just something blocked inside of them that's keeping them from that full experience of humanity. Um, so yes, yeah, wow. so I'm going to talk a little bit about my own journey and my own queerness. Uh, yeah, crying and particularly suppressing my tears happened at the same time that I was awakening to my own queer identity. So the time that I stopped crying was probably, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, which was right around when I also was realizing that I was attracted to boys. Um, and that was a truth that I was not ready to confront, let alone, you know, share with anybody else. I just was not ready for me to, to really own that. And crying particularly in in men or you know uh, folks who are acculturated as boys uh, is so effeminized and so resoundly linked to homosexuality because anything that's effeminate in men is automatically you know homosexual uh, mm -hmm. that i think i had a pretty keen understanding that if I was crying, it might invite people to ask questions about something that I was just not ready to face. Um, and again, I, I think I was actually more scared of admitting it to myself than I was about even other people knowing. And so I learned to suppress those tears. I learned, you know, in, in the beginning, I would you know, start to feel like I needed to cry and I would, you know, s suppress it in the moment so that I could get to a, you know, private place, a bathroom or, uh, you know, wait until I got home and I would cry in my room. But the thing about, you know, emotional numbness is that it becomes habitual and instinctive like anything else. You know, you, you learn how to, when you feel those tears coming, push them down and then sometimes you go back to your room later and you actually don't cry at all. And then maybe the next time, you know, uh, you start feeling like you might be moving towards a place of tears and you, you know, cut that off at the past. So you never even get close to the, you know, that place where you might be crying. And so before you, you know it, you're just not in a place where you feel particularly moved to cry ever. Uh, and so, yeah, by the time I was in, in seventh or eighth grade, I was still very uh, much in the closet about my sexuality, still very much unwilling to admit to myself. I mean, I knew, but I was not uh, really ready to uh, be honest that this was something that was, you know, really true about myself. I, you know, was like, eh, maybe, maybe it'll change. <laughs> or, you know, I, I definitely felt like I, I was, and particularly, you know, being not, you know, homosexual, but uh, some, somewhere all over the place in terms of my attraction. Um, you know, it was easy enough to just sort of focus on my attraction to, to girls or to women and sort of pretend that the rest of that didn't exist. Um, but as I was doing this, you know, that process of partitioning off parts of the self is a kind of psychic violence. And I think that this mm -hmm. scar tissue that ended up layered so deeply over my tear ducts, to use a weird metaphor, um, <laughs> I think that is a product of the kind of emotional damage that I was doing because I was afraid. And so, yeah. you know, as I, I learned, you know, then by the time I got to college, I started coming to terms with myself. I still wasn't out publicly in the world, but I was starting to, you know, sleep with men and, uh, you know, was starting to recognize that this was a, a really core part of me that wasn't going anywhere. And so maybe I needed to, you know, <laughs> find a way to, to, to integrate it into my, my personhood. Um, and so then by the time I reached seminary, I had really started to unravel some of that internalized homophobia. And then it was really that process of, of being 
in seminary and learning to cry again that helped me let go of the last of that shame. And so, you know, I think the the journey that I made in college of starting to accept my sexuality was what brought me to a point where then in the, you know, my first year of seminary, I was able to have this experience where I realized that there was this emotional damage that I had suffered that I really needed to, you know, work on. Uh, and then it was sort of paradoxically that working on the emotional damage that helped me, you know, carry me that last leg of the journey in terms of actually owning and, and accepting my queerness about that. By the time I was done with seminary, I was both a person who, you know, could feel and cry again and somebody who was no longer ashamed about who I was. Um, right. And I'm, I'm interested, you know, you, you were sharing that you, you, you know, crying was also very salient for you in this period where you were learning to, to accept your own bisexuality. And I'm wondering, you know, what did it feel like in your body when you learned how to cry again? I mean, I like, I'm trying to think back to that moment. I, I do feel these days when I'm crying, it feels so good. Even when the impulse is something difficult or negative, like it just feels like I'm really experiencing that and not pushing it down. And it, 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 I, it's this thing I feel in my chest and, and it's, it is hard to describe. I work on this with my therapist, but it is some kind of a release of, of tension. And I think back to like the, when I cried in my therapist's office and when I was like first coming out, which was sort of the first time I said it out loud, even to myself. And I think I was afraid. I mean, I was finally accepting feelings that were inside that I had pushed away for so long. And there was some recognition in me that I, you know, that, that life might change now that I'm addressing this. And it was really, really scary for me to do that. Um, but it was also liberating. And I think that was part of the, the tears was the, liberation and the the feeling of like I, I was sad for having repressed all this for so long but there was something forward looking about those tears and I mean you wrote about I I wrote this down you wrote about tears as like people think of them as a consequence of things that lead up to the moment of crying but actually you're you wrote about them as a doorway to the future and to change and to authenticity so I loved that. And I was curious for you to expand on that. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing, you know, those, those experiences and memories with me. I think there's something really intimate about talking about crying. Like crying is this very simultaneously private and social experience. It's something that's both, you know, core to ourselves, but also connects us to, to one another. And so I think you know, talking about tears, it always feels intimate to me in a way that that feels like a gift. So I just want to to say thank you for giving me that gift. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, thinking about you know what you've you've said and you know how does that reflect on sort of crying as a as a as a doorway? One of the things I hear in your story is how humanizing crying is that when we allow ourselves to cry, it is this visceral embodied recognition of what we are moving through, whether that's you know, the pain of loss and grief or joy or tenderness or even fear and anxiety. You know, there's all these, these emotions that so oftentimes go unnamed beneath the surface of our lives. Uh, because sometimes it's inconvenient to confront our emotions. <laughs> sometimes we just gotta like, I gotta, I gotta finish this project. I gotta get, you know, turn this in on deadline. I've gotta, you know, uh, I have, you know, a party to organize. I don't have time to to deal with these these feelings. Um, and when we do that enough, we start to really alienate ourselves from, you know, our emotions. And I think that, you know. One of the things that I think is really important to talk about is that this alienation benefits somebody, 
Mm. You know, it, it is the kind of emotional suppression that so many of us endure day to day is a product of the systems of racism and capitalism and you know, homophobia and transphobia and all these these big systemic evils that we live under. You know, the those forces want us to feel divorced from ourselves because people who don't feel are people who don't resist. And so when I think about tears as a doorway, one of the things I'm thinking about is it's this invitation to recognize that we have already been moving through this personal journey. Mm. That there are so many things that you are already moving through that are happening in the background of your life that you may not be naming or truly feeling in a deep way. And if we can cry about them, it's this almost liturgical action, this ability to stop, to name the thing we're experiencing and to dignify it. Mm -hmm. All of that is humanizing. It makes us feel human. And if we do it together, the response we get from somebody else who affirms, yes, the thing you are feeling is real and valid, that's what helps us feel not alone. And I, I think for me, that's one of the most important pieces in, in crying is, is the social dimension that if we're able to cry in the presence of another and somebody who empathically holds our tears, again, it's this humanizing response. It's this person seeing what we've been moving through and saying, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a fucking lot to endure. Yeah. And I'm so proud to be in your presence and so proud to be on that journey with you. IV, the number one powdered hydration brand in America, which is now available in sugar-free. Liquid IV has really changed the way I hydrate seriously. Sometimes the water just goes through you, but with Liquid IV, you really get a boost of energy. It has three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. Liquid IV is also not non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. And it tastes great. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code 2 guys at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code 2 guys T-W-O-B-I-G-U-I-S, at liquidiv.com. It helped me understand a lot and differentiate reading your book, like differentiate different types of crying and what purposes they serve. And there's some that serve these social functions. And then there's a, there's the internal and I've, and it helped me realize like I've had all of these experiences. Like I've, especially since being with my, my wife, like we fight a lot and we cry sometimes and it, you know, I used to think, oh, that must be terrible if one of us is crying. The other one must have done something to really hurt the other person. And, you know, that that's possible, but it's not <laughs> always the case. Uh, and a lot of the time, it's the first realization or recognition that we are really hurting about something that's more than just what we're talking about, that there's something deeper that we need to look at. And crying is like the signal to the other person or or other people around us. It's also a signal to ourselves. And, and there's been other times like I have, I, I've been having career struggles in my TV writing uh, career. It's very difficult profession. And I've had a lot of jealousy and resentment at times. And I a couple months ago, I had a dream about this and, I woke up crying and I was alone. I wasn't with my partner that night. I, we were, I forget why, but I was in bed alone and I just couldn't stop crying. Cause I, I was just thinking about all these things and I didn't know what to do. And I felt so bad and I, and, and I still don't know exactly what that meant, but it was a signal to me 
that there was something deeper here that I hadn't yet fully confronted. And it was, it was kind of fascinating. Like I couldn't believe that I couldn't fall back asleep and in, and it was both terrible and it was also liberating because I, I finally just gave into it and I just, I just cried for like a couple hours and I just didn't sleep. It's interesting that you're talking about crying in this space between sleep and waking, because one of the things I've noticed in conversations with a lot, because I did all these interviews for the book, so I've I've just talked to so many people about crying at this point. Um, uh, One of the things I've noticed in the interviews is how many people report crying more frequently in liminal spaces that oftentimes you won't necessarily cry in the hospital room with somebody, but maybe you're crying in the antechamber before you enter, or you cry mm. in the car ride home. People cry on planes. I was uh, interviewing a lot of people from my wife's old office uh, that I talk about in the book, and they they talk about this stairway, this like back stairwell being the place everybody would go to cry. I think so oftentimes we cry in places that are are between one thing and another because crying is physically that process that moves us from somewhere to somewhere else. I have this, uh, this interview in the chapter in physiology and crying that I love with this uh, researcher who focuses on why people cry in response to art. You know, why would you cry from an aesthetic encounter? He, he started this research because he was at a Rothko exhibit and he saw all of these people crying. Um, If you're not familiar with Rothko paintings, they're just these big voluminous blocks of color. Um, And he saw these people crying in front of them and he was like, okay, well, you know, if if they're crying about this, it's not, it's not the painting. It must be something inside of them. And he's built this whole analytical frame where he thinks about crying as particularly with relationship to art as our willingness to step into a, a liminal space with a understanding in our heads that we're going to be the same as we were on the other side of it. And then all of a sudden we get into the middle of this, you know, aesthetic encounter with a piece of art and we find all of these things that we've been moving through. And all of a sudden we can't help ourselves and we just start to cry because it's not just about what we're watching, the book we're reading. It's about what we've been moving through personally mm-hmm. And that's the thing that, you know, it becomes the impetus for our tears. And I think, you know, people's frequency and likelihood to cry in these liminal spaces is, again, a testimony to this uh, process of tears as a, as a function of transformation, hmm. as something that happens when we are in the middle of being transformed. And so it doesn't surprise me at all to hear you sharing this story about crying as you are waking up from a dream, because, you know... Y- it's this, like you say, physical manifestation of something that you're that you have been moving through emotionally, as your body is moving from a place of sleeping to a place of waking. Right. You need that sort of break to sometimes get to that point to process what's happening and then make the you know transform whether you want to or not. But yeah. it it often can't happen in the moment. Well, and, and evolutionary psychologists will point to, you know, this function of crying as possibly a way that, you know, we were a, are able to process trauma at a later time. So, you know, if you're right. running, running away from a predator or something, it's not a particularly good time to start crying. But then if you, you know, completely move past, you know, blow past this experience and don't process it at all, you're actually not going to learn the lessons that are going to keep you safe the next time around. And so what an adaptive process to have this ability to sort of experience an emotional echo of a thing that we've been through in a time that hopefully we're in a safer place or with somebody we love and we're able to relive in real and emotional ways this thing that we have gone you know, gone through. Yeah. I, I just love that idea of crying as like this emotional echo space that lets us relive something important because it has, there's still things we haven't learned yet. Yeah. That part of the book made so much sense to me. I want to get back to that in a second, but you also mentioned something I'm going to jump around a little, cause I thought it's fascinating about, you know, crying in response to art. And there was part of your book where you talked about crying listening to the choir in church or, or like music in general. And, and for me, like theater or something like 
I've had those experiences. Like even when I was younger and I would suppress crying about personal things, I would cry in the theater when something resonated on an emotional level or connected to something I was going through. And and it was a signal that, oh, that's an unimportant idea to me, or that's an important emotion to me, or has some something going on with me. And and mu- even more so music. Like I, I remember being in uh, the jazz band in high school and I don't know why, I, but there would always be like certain parts of certain songs that I just thought were so beautiful and the melodies and harmonies and the way the band played together made my body kind of vibrate on just this right frequency that made me emotional and I, I didn't always cry while I'm playing in the band, but I had that, the, that feeling of like deep emotion and awe of, you know, just these notes played in this order and, and how it came together. Um, can you talk about how like music and art play a role in this? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I would just say is like, what a beautiful testament to the majesty with which we're created that we would be able to feel so deeply in response to an aesthetic encounter that it moves us to weep. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful to me. I I just love this idea that we are hardwired to appreciate beauty enough that we have a physiological response to it. Mm -hmm. I I just, uh, this last Sunday at church, I wept because the choir sang uh, somewhere from uh, West Side Story. Mm. And it was in the middle of you know, this Pride Month that has been marked by so much public violence against queer people. And to hear the choir singing, you know, somewhere there will be a place for us. There's a time for us. We'll find a new way of living. I was just, I mean, I'm, you can probably hear you who are listening on the mm-hmm. podcast, I'm crying. I'm crying right now, but I was just undone. I was leaning against the wall because I couldn't hold myself up. Because there was something in those words that was this prophetic invitation to something different. And I'm I'm so weary. I'm so tired of, of living through these repeated cycles of violence again and again and again. I mean, so much of my professional life has been working in communications, writing rapid response, you know, statements and things in response to the most recent school shooting and to just, you know, go through and repeat the same words like this perverse ritual again and again is shattering. And so to sit or stand in a, in a sanctuary and hear a choir sing about something else than this made me believe that it was possible in a kind of way that somebody telling me it's possible never could. And I, and I think the act of crying for me magnifies that hope, that belief. One of the things that heightened emotion does is it sends a signal to our brain that this piece of information is important, that there is something crucial about what we are experiencing that we should not forget. And so to to listen to something beautiful and to cry has a way of cementing that hope of making it real and tangible, something you can touch and taste instead of just empty words. Yeah. 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 And there's, there's something about music and art that, that makes words resonate on just a different level and makes you hear it in a different way. And yeah, I've had that. I, it's not coming to mind right now, the specific examples, but I've had that experience at Temple with certain songs or even just the organ at a certain moment. Uh, I've had that experience a lot in like 
Broadway musicals. Uh, something about the the combo of the words and the music uh, telling a story, yeah, is can be so impactful. I think one of the other interesting things about musicals and, and theater is that again, it's one of those liminal spaces because you're simultaneously by yourself and in a crowd of people. That like because the theater is dark, you mm-hmm. you get this feeling like you're watching it all by yourself. Yeah. And yet at the same time, you're surrounded by a community. And I think that that's just such a beautiful sort of duality that for me makes it one of those liminal spaces where I'm more likely to cry. It it just made me think of what I just saw um, Kimberly Akimbo a few weeks ago, which won the award for best musical, the Tony. And I cried multiple times in that show, especially at the end, which I won't give away, but it just reminds me. And now I'm just kind of making sense of it now, but there's a love story and there's a scene, you know, the main character is dying. She has a condition where she ages rapidly and she doesn't have that long to live, but there's a romance with her and this other boy. And they name, they're doing these anagrams. That's kind of the gimmick of the show. And they do an anagram of the boy's name and it's um, bittersweet and they say bittersweet and then they kiss and just name. I mean, and that was what everyone is feeling like. And without naming that word, I don't know that I would have cried, but because they said, this is basically, this is a bittersweet moment. And then it happened. It made me cry so much. Uh, and it was so, and it, and it's that's the beauty of it. In the face of you're all you're aware, this story is about she's dying. Yeah, um, I don't know. That's that's the one that comes to mind. Um, if we if both if we didn't cry during this interview, it wouldn't be a very successful chat about crying. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on because you mentioned the evolutionary advantage of tears, which I thought was fascinating. What else did you learn in your research about the science of tears? And also, like, why is there so little research to jump ahead? Because you wrote there's not enough. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things that is true is that crying is very hard to study. Um, Generally speaking, the way scientists research crying is they get a bunch of people together and they show them a really sad movie and they cross their fingers and they really hope it's sad enough. Um, Which, as you can probably imagine, uh, you, the listener, uh, is not a surefire way to make everybody in the space cry. You know, everybody responds to different things. And so, you know, regardless of what movie you choose, there are going to be people who, you know, don't find that movie particularly moving. Uh, It's so notoriously difficult to get men to cry in laboratory settings like that, that oftentimes many studies exclude men entirely because almost all the time when you would include men, none of them would cry and you'd have to throw out all that data anyways. And so, you know, after a, after a fashion, I think a lot of researchers were like, well, listen, we're not even, we're not even going to look at them. And there's also, you know, an artificiality to studying crying in a laboratory that I think is exacerbated and even more pronounced than, because obviously there's always, you know, an observer uh, effect in any kind of research study. But when you're looking at something like salivation or sweating, like there are, there are ways to make somebody sweat reliably in a lab space that's not going to be, you know, super different than, you know, if you if you increase the temperature in a room, you're going to start sweating. And it doesn't matter if you, that's, you know, happening out in a beach or, you know, in a laboratory. But with crying, I think it's really hard to convince anybody that to show somebody a sad movie in a lab is the same experience of crying that somebody experiences when, you know, their mother dies and they're weeping inconsolably. Like those, those two things, you know, yes, they are both crying, but the nature of them is so far removed that there, mm-hmm. there's an artificiality that's hard to shake. Also crying, uh, 
is not linked to a lot of diseases. There's not, you know, a big pharmaceutical investment in, you know, drugs to make people cry more or less. And so the kind of grant funding that's often, uh, you know, what makes research feasible and possible simply isn't there for crying in the way that it is for other things. So there's a real scarcity of research uh, when you, you know, compare crying to other kinds of physiological uh, experiences, which is tragic because it's also a deeply human and universal thing. I mean, how many things can you really say are true for all people? Like every single person cries at some point during their life. I, mm-hmm. I guarantee it. I'm willing to, to bet my own life on that. Um, and there are very few things that we can really say that are true and universal for every single person. Um, and so the fact mm-hmm. that you have this core function of humanity that has been woefully under-researched, uh, yeah, is, is really sad to me. One of the things that's really fascinating to me when we actually dig into the research of what people have found about tears is this beautiful reciprocal social dimension to crying. Uh, the researcher Ad Vingerhoots has has done a ton of research on, you know, when you see somebody else crying, how does that make you respond? Mm-hmm. And what they've found reliably in lots of different studies, there was, you know, one study that they uh, researched uh, people in dozens of countries and six continents, you know, thousands of participants around the world. They found that in every single country, when people saw someone crying, they were more likely to want to offer help. And that to me testifies to the fact that the social dimension of crying is not a cultural thing. It's a human thing. If it was a cultural thing, we would expect that in some cultures, you know, crying would increase the amount of tenderness. And in some other ones, you know, you would see the opposite. But instead, what we see is that when we see someone who is weeping, if we haven't been damaged, if we haven't, you know, somehow been harmed to the point where we see tears as a sign of weakness, most people, when they see someone else in distress, want to offer help. And that is a beautiful thing to me. Mm -hmm. There's also some really fascinating research. Uh, The the neurologist William Frey put out this book in the 80s called Crying the Mystery of Tears, in which he conjectured that crying is actually an excretory process, that uh, when you compare emotional tears to tears cried because you're cutting an onion or you got dust in your eye, those emotional tears have a higher protein concentration and specifically a higher concentration of various neurotransmitters that are linked to stress. And so he conjectured that actually our tear ducts are concentrating and excreting the stress from our brains. Uh, Since then, there really has not been very much research at all, one way or another, to either confirm or disprove this hypothesis. But I think it offers a tantalizing possibility that the feeling that we have when we have that really good cry and then calm down and that night we just feel so much better is not actually something that's just, yeah. you know, in our heads. It's, it's something that has physically happened that we have, you know, released some kind of, uh, you know, toxin from our bodies. Right. Uh, so I, I think there are things, you know, there's so much more research to be done, but what things that we already know, you know, paint a picture about crying as this really essential human process, something that is linked to human connection, something that might actually be physiologically healthy for us and certainly mm-hmm. something that deserves more than you know a cursory note in psychological journals yeah i thought all that stuff was so fascinating and that is certainly how it feels to me in my body like that clicked that like oh it's you're releasing something that's toxic inside and uh, you also wrote i thought was interesting that the higher protein content in emotional tears could lead the tears to sort of linger on your face longer and fall more slowly so that other people have time to see them and respond to them, which is also pretty fascinating. Uh, and makes yeah, sense. there's all these just like these little, you know, and again, because there's not a ton of research really showing one way or another, you know, you'll just be reading these, these uh, you know, what little books on crying exist or, you know, psychological papers and you'll come across some note like that that's almost like a throwaway line and you're like oh my god what a beautiful thing (laughs) there's there's such poetry to our tears um and and it really does to me feel like this affirmation that we are hardwired for community 
And that to me is like one of the, the things that I take most deeply away from the crying research is that, you know, humanity was not created to be alone, to, to paraphrase a, a book I've read from time to time. Um, you know, we are physiologically built to respond to one another's feelings. You know, we, humans are not tremendously, uh, you know, physically remarkable creatures. We don't run super fast. We don't have exoskeletons. We're not, you know, particularly strong. Our babies take <laughs> years before they're at all useful. <laughs> and yet, if you look at something like crying, it offers a lens to see all of those things as a strength and not a weakness. Mm -hmm. Because what humans are remarkable about is our ability to build mutually beneficial relationships outside of our immediate kin, to build non-zero uh, interactions that work for mutual uplift. That is a beautiful thing. And it's something that's hardwired in our very biology that we have these, these processes that we were built with because, and seemingly only because they inspire a reciprocal tenderness. That is remarkable. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I mean, and uh, like I cry so much more lately and it's opened me up to so much more connection and feeling and authenticity. Given all that, why do you think our culture, at least the one we live in, values not crying so yeah. much? And yet then paradoxically, why do people who don't ever cry often seem so toxic? Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I, you know, to loop back to what you you said in the beginning of that question, I think a lot of us are afraid that if we cry, we are going to be judged. People are going to, you know, think less of us. But in my experience as somebody who has really been trying not to, you know, hold back my tears over the last decade, almost always when I cry, it leads me into deeper relationship with other people. I have had so few experiences of somebody making fun of me or mocking me because I cry, you know, as an adult, <laughs> I had yeah. some of them growing up, but as an adult, generally speaking, when I cry, it actually oftentimes invites some sort of beautiful encounter with another person. Uh, and I think so many of those fears are really more grounded in our own fear of being vulnerable than they are in, you know, a real response that other people have to our, to our tears. And that being said, you know, to link to the other half of your question, those fears that we have that are so often linked to very particular experiences of, you know, crying and somebody else mocking us or crying and, uh, having negative social consequences, those fears are a product of a world that does not want us to cry and particularly does not want us to cry around other people. Because when we cry around other people, it invites solidarity. Like the truth of when we cry, oftentimes the response is not negative. It's actually beautiful and positive and it creates more connection. That is a threat to people who would like things to remain exactly how they are. Mm -hmm. If you're in a workplace and you are, you know, setting wildly unrealistic uh, expectations for your employees and your employees all feel like they're on the verge of tears, if they cry, but they only cry in the bathroom or they cry after work when they go home, their colleagues don't see that that person is also going through this harm in the place that they're working. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do this, this whole extended interview in the book with, uh, you know, somebody my wife used to work with um, at a big uh, women's media website. And I interviewed a bunch of people uh, from her work for the book um, because it was not a healthy workplace. And a lot of people reported, you know, crying very frequently, but almost all of them talked about crying and feeling like that, 
like their tears were a personal failure. Like they weren't able to be strong enough to, to succeed in this workplace, even though the demands were wildly uh, outrageous. They interpreted those tears as a personal failure. And I think that if everybody had been crying just at their desk and everyone's seeing, oh my God, everybody else is crying every day too, people would say, hold on a second. This is not a personal failure. This is a structural problem. Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. who create structural problems do not want you to see them as structural problems. They want you to see it as a personal failure. Yeah. And so, you know, whether it is the uh, you know, violent response to Black Lives Matter protests or, you know, uh, evangelical Christianity's treatment of of crying as as a you know in men as something to be shunned and discarded to produce the kind of strong men who will continue a patriarchal project like all of these forces are intentionally designed to alienate people from what they are feeling and what they are experiencing and to make them feel like they are alone in that experience because if we really were more open with the kind of pain that so many of us are going through on a daily basis, it would invite a different kind of world. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And it's, it feels like I went through a similar trajectory in my queerness and in this, which was like, I felt very alone for a long time and crying would make me feel alone. And it felt like something I had to do in private, if if at all. And mm-hmm. same with my bisexuality, same with my poly identity, like it isolated me for a long time until I broke through that finally and found, oh, there's a whole community of people thinking the same way or experiencing similar things. And actually, we have so much in common. We've And it's not a coincidence we all felt alone. There are all these structural forces that want that to happen. Thank you for listening to this episode with Ben Perry. There is more to come. Stay tuned. But also there is even more bonus content on Patreon. There's 15 more minutes with Ben. You don't want to miss it. Head over to patreon.com slash Robert Brooks Cohen. The link is also in all our social media bios and in the show notes. We continue diving deeper into why crying matters for the queer community specifically. Ben also explained why tears were a very important part of AIDS activism in the 80s and 90s. We also discussed the intersectionality of crying and why some minority groups tend to value expressing their authentic emotions more than other groups. We talked about how crocodile tears can be weaponized to cause harm and further oppress marginalized people. And we also talked about why you should believe people when they cry, even if their reasoning is unsound or they are crocodile tears. So don't miss all that. It's on Patreon. Thank you so much to those who have already subscribed. I really appreciate it. There's more and more content added there every week and more to come. And now here's the rest of my interview with Ben Perry. I want to talk about that as our as our final thought, because clearly the book is not just sort of what is crying all about, but it's about how we can affect change and how we can use this understanding to do that. And I think you wrote something that resonated with me, which is that like people see crying and joy at opposite ends of a spectrum. But like a good bisexual theorist, like I think you explained how crying is not just this one thing. It's it's a lot of everything all together, and it can be both ends of the spectrum at once. We cry out of pain and out of joy. And mm-hmm. let me let me read this paragraph, and then I'll ask for your response about how you know how are we going to change the world. You wrote particularly in the decades to come as climate change promises a series of relentless catastrophes, among among other things you wrote about in that chapter, this ability to live abundantly within our grief is exactly what the world needs. As long as we picture tears and joy as opposite ends of a spectrum, we consign ourselves to live within trauma in an increasingly traumatic world. If we mindfully celebrate the tenderness we feel in each other's arms, however, it preserves our capacity to hold these euphoric moments in tension 
with the world's pain. And I, you know, I think that's a very queer by something way of looking at the world <laughs> that we can hold these multiple things that are true at once and tears can be part of our awareness of that. So how do you see that and how, how does crying help us address all these pretty difficult things coming in the future? Yeah. And, and help us is exactly the right question. In the, the last chapter of my book, you know, in the whole book, I've been, I've been doing all of this buildup of why all of these, these things about why our tears matter and why tears are important and why we should you know, really be embracing uh, tears as a, as a place for transformation. And then in the last chapter, I do a little of like, you know, will this fix everything? Of course not. <laughs> of course it's not going to be, you know, if we all start crying tomorrow, like that's it. The world's, the world's better. Like, no, no, like that's, that's not how anything works, but I do think it can help. And when we're in a place where we need to change so dramatically and in such a short period of time, we cannot afford the kind of slow, objective, capital O, moderate change, tinkering at the edges. You know, we are moving towards a radical future in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And we get to choose what kind of radical future it will be. It will either be a future where we holistically overhaul everything about the way we live together, our economics, our social policies, our priorities, our energy sources, I mean, everything from the top to the bottom. We need a, a complete Marshall Plan for the world. And that kind of radical change demands a willingness to enter into our own emotions. Because we're not going to get there if we're just sort of logically thinking and, you know, taking one deliberate step after another. We need a conversion experience mm-hmm. as a as a culture. Um or we are going to end up in a radical future that is marked by you know, large-scale ecological catastrophe and huge human migration met by violence. And it, it, it is a world that I do not want to live in. Mm-hmm. And the, the hard thing is that this changing we need to do is going to be happening at the time that we will also be continuing to suffer because of all of these forces that are already in place. And so we need to figure out how we can both tend to our own pain while simultaneously maintaining the resilience to do something, Mm. to dare to take a risk, to love the world, deeply enough that we open ourselves to breaking. And I think crying helps with that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense to me. And I do, I see that so much like on the news and among a lot of my straight friends, there's this logical approach to how are we going to solve these things? And like, (laughs) I don't think logic is all bad. I think logic is a no, good thing to not. use. But, like, but when, when but it's it hits not that enough. place, it's not enough. Yeah. And, and then when it hits that place where all of a sudden they start feeling the, the pain part, the response so often is to shut off, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like that because you're operating purely out of this like objective place, right. all of a sudden when you hit a point where the things are so overwhelming, you don't have the emotional tools to actually process what you are experiencing and still instead it's like oh it's time for brunch i can't deal with that anymore yeah Um, right and that is a particular kind of privilege but it's also a a disastrously a disastrous tendency because it undercuts the ability to you know build collective action yeah right and and i think uh, in that mindset there's also this logic of well crying doesn't solve anything and crying so why should i do it so (laughs) why should i do it and and you know you quoted someone in your book i'll read where they said 
when they cry, everything that I cried about hasn't changed, but I've changed. I feel more alive and less dead than the moment before I cried. And you wrote that that's a potent gift that crying offers. And it, it, you know, it allows, we need to change too in order to change the world. Uh, And and this is one way to allow yourself to feel authentically and express that to others authentically so that we can address it collectively. Yeah. Cool. Uh, that's a nice note to leave off on, I guess. We uh, we have a lot of work to do, so so get crying, everyone. Um, <laughs> I, I highly recommend Ben's book. It's called Cry Baby. Uh, it is available everywhere. Do you have a website or any, any plugs about I'm, where to find your work? Yeah, my, my website's benjaminjperry.com. You can drop me a note and stuff on there. Uh, my book is available for purchase anywhere. It's also on Audible, you know, in audiobook format. And, and uh, I, I just can't wait for you to read it. And I hope that it will help you be curious about your relationship with tears and to let go of some of the shame that so many of us walk around. Awesome. Me too. I highly recommend it. Pick it up. I... This is stuff I've been thinking about and been ruminating on, and the book was really, really helpful for, for me to clarify a lot and, and introduce a lot of new, new concepts that I will be thinking about a lot in the future. So all of that stuff will be in the show notes. And uh, thanks so much for coming back to Two Bye Guys, Ben. It was really nice to see you again. It's delightful to be here. Two Bye Guys is produced and edited by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman. Our music is by Ross Mincer. We are supported by the Gotham, and we are part of the Zencaster Creator Network. Use promo code 2 Guys to get 30% off. Thanks for listening to Two Bye Guys. <laughs>